Good morning, esteemed speakers and participants. It, it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to this two-part webinar series that explores unknown aspects of Jain history. I am Sanchari, fellow at the India Center Flame University. Please join me in giving a warm virtual welcome to the host and chair of the India Center, Professor Pankaj Jain. Over to you, Professor Jain. Thank you, Sanchari. Thank you for your help for... Uh organizing this uh, this webinar. Uh, for the first time, we are doing back-to-back -back two webinars by our esteemed guests from, from uh, Ghent University in Belgium, which has suddenly emerged as a major center for Jain studies in Europe. And we are very, very privileged and honored to have them here at Flame University campus. Uh, so to begin, I'll, I'll start with reading the bio for Professor Eva D. Clerk, who is the Associate Professor at Ghent University, Belgium. Her courses include all levels of Sanskrit and Prakrit, including Upper Branch and Classical Hindi, as well as South Asian literature and South Asian religious traditions. Her main research interests are the Jain versions of the Indian epics, especially in Upper Branch and later medieval and early modern Digambar history. The first volumes of, of her translation of Swayambhu Devas Palmer Charyu has been published in the Murthy Classical Library of India at Harvard University Press as Life of Padma. So today she's going to speak for us on the Jain Mahabharats. Welcome, Professor Eva. The floor thank is yours. You. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so I hope the presentation works. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I will start with an overview of what I will talk about. I am sort of assuming that both Mahabharata and Jainism don't need too much introduction for you, but I mean, I will I will address some um, scholarly issues nonetheless, and then um, look at the, uh, you know, focus more on this Jain. Mahabharatas. So first and foremost, of course, I want to thank uh, the professors uh, Pankaj Jain, Devendra Jain, and uh, Santri Chaudhary for giving me this opportunity to um, address you all. Um, I've been working on the subject of um, Jain Mahabharatas and Ramayanas for many years now. Um, I mean, I tend to switch between um, both of them. Um, yeah, so let us begin with uh, an introduction to the uh, Mahabharata. So uh, again, I assume it is well known um, to, to most of you. Um, Mahabharata means a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, first of all, it's Inga, a story. Can I just right? jump in and tell you that we see your notes, not the slide? Oh, crap. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That was not... Uh, oh, yeah. Let. Oh. Is this better? Uh, yes, but they're yes. St still not full screen. Yeah. Okay. Um, does anyone know how to do the, the, the full yes, screen? Yes, now, now we can see the full screen. Now it's full screen. But now I can't see my notes. Anymore. Right. Okay, then I'll have to kind of not go by the notes and um, just address what's on the slides without the... Oh, sorry, I'm just not all too good with these uh anyway i'll go over the the slides then um 
so it will not be the fluid uh, prose that I had in my notes, but anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, so Mahabharata, um, I mean, if you, the, the most common translation of the title is that it, you know, it's translated as the story of the great. You have Maha there and then war between brackets because the war is not, uh, it's not mentioned in, in, um, um, in the title of the descendants of Bharata. So this Bharata with a short um, A, this Bharata uh, is considered um, kind of like a forefather. Uh, I mean, he is the forefather of, of the, the, the two warring um, parties in the Mahabharata. And at the same time, he is the Bharata, um, according to some um, after whom, you know, Bharat or India is, uh, is known. Uh, or is named. Um, so uh, a lot of scholars have have worked on the Mahabharata, and there are um, differing op opinions on um, its genesis. Um, most scholars tend to agree that there are many different layers in this uh, Mahabharata, um, but the story in it as a whole is attributed to Vyasa, um, who at the same time is also a character. Um, in the story, but the word Vyasa itself, I mean, literally means the compiler, right? So um, you kind of get the I, the suggestion that um, you know the, the, this is a um, a character that has been introduced as yeah, but but this was basically um, referring to yeah redactors um, of the story. Um, it is, um, or it was in, you know, when um, colonial, um, in the colonial period, when um, interest rose in uh, classical Sanskrit literature, um, it was termed a classical Sanskrit epic, and in that sense, it was often twinned with the Ramayana. Um, be and it's it's the kind of the, the reason for that is because of course in the West you or in the Greek tradition you also have these two uh, Homeric um, epics and it was quite easy for uh, for European scholars to find in India you know oh there's one epic oh and look here is another epic but we will come back to that in a minute and at the center of this Mahabharata is a fratricidal war. Um, Sometimes it's also called a Holocaust, um, where basically, um, yeah, mankind is kind of almost wiped out. Um, and it begins, it all begins with this, this war between two clans of the same, the same family who then gather around them, um, all the peoples of North India. Um, so coming back to that link between Mahabharata and Ramayana, I mean, there there are obvious reasons for twinning them, um, and the first one being, of course, that they are what, in Western terms, would be called epic in the sense that they are the stories of warriors. Yeah, there there is a a, a war at the center of both of them, um, warriors and heroes. Um, but there's a there's also important differences between the two. On the one hand, the Mah the Mahabharata. Um, it tends to have this 
suggestion of being dangerous, of being taboo. Uh, and, and one of the sayings is that you, you should not have a complete set of the Mahabharata text in your house because it might generate you know, uh, war or strife within your family. It's, it's, uh, there's this danger, this danger associated with it. Whereas the Ramayana is generally considered to be the more auspicious um, work. Um, at this, you know, what is paralleled here is that they um, both kind of tell the, the story or the lineage of these um, legendary uh, royal dynasties in, of, of, kind of yeah, uh, Indian lore. Um, the Mahabharata tells the story of the lunar dynasty or the, the Somavamsha, it's generally called. Um, whereas then Ramayana is all about the kings of the solar dynasty. So the the the, the Surya Vamsha, the Ikshvaku Vamsha, etc. with King Rama and then his predecessors and his uh, his followers. Um there's also um you know the characters, these Vaishnava characters, divinities that are present in the story in, in, in both the epics. Um, so there is Rama in the Ramayana, um, who is an, an, uh, a Vishnu avatara, um, and Krishna in the Mahabharata is introduced there. It's really, it's, this is the first um, time um, in Indian history that the character of Krishna pops up. And what both also uh, have in common is that the stories uh, of these epics are, were frequently adapted in later art, be it pictorial art, performance art, um, and also in uh, in literature, of course. And th this is how we come to the Jains and to the Jain version. So Jain universal history is where we find the characters of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. I Just a brief introductory slide about Jainism. Um, Jainism is a religious tradition that um, arose in uh, in, in uh, the Ganges uh, plains, Gangetic plains, so in northeastern um, India. It's a so-called shramanic religion, um, just as Buddhism is. And what does that mean, a shramanic religion? Well, that the ideal of asceticism is very much um, at the center of it. That doesn't mean that the whole, that all the Jains are ascetics or want to be ascetics, but um, this the, the ideal, um, at least this kind of detachment from um, from material, the material world is um, something that is uh, strived after. Um, the a founding character, you could say, um, of Jainism is Mahavira. Mahavira. Um, you could compare him to, you know, the Buddha. He's a, was a, a most probably historical character who lived circa sixth century before the common era. Um, but according to the Jains, he is not, you know, the founder of Jainism. They consider him actually the last in a long line of twenty-four Jinnas or Tirthankaras, as they are called. Um, you know, who who spread the eternal Dharma of Jainism. Um, and the central vow or the central principle of uh, Jainism is this vow of ahimsa, um, of nonviolence. And if, I mean, when I describe Jainism to um, to our students in Ghent, I tend to, you know, they, 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 they take, Buddhism is much better known um, than Jainism. 
Um, Buddhism also has this focus on uh, on meditation, at least, and on um, also nonviolence is is, uh, is also there, and this mindfulness. This is very similar in Jainism, only that Jainism kind of takes it one step further, you could say. So that it is um, nonviolence, but just a step further. So how does this translate? Well, there is you know the Jain diet. Um, that doesn't uh, that excludes uh, animal products. Um, a popular uh, image of Jains is, for instance, that of of Jain monks and nuns who wear the mukpati, um, this kind of a piece of cloth, um, and they walk around with a with a broom and brushing the earth before they put their foot down in order not to crush any innocent. Um, small creatures or insects, and same for the muhpati, they use this so that to avoid breathing in any um, any small insects. And incidentally, this muhpati is actually not used by the great majority of um, um, of Jain um, monastic traditions, but uh, it's still a popular image. That's why I mention it. But I I think that's kind of the most important. Um, elements of Jainism. Now, this the Jains have something that has been termed by um, Western scholars, again, you know, the Jain universal history. This term universal history comes from the German Universalgeschichte. Um, and um, yeah, it basically, it's, it's a, you could call it legendary, mythological or traditional history, um, historiography of the universe. Um, so this is the idea that um, the universe is subject to um, to time cycles. So if this is cyclical. You have um, periods. You you have an upward kind of movement of time, and then a downward movement of time. During the upward movement of time, um, the situation gets better for the people. It goes from the most negative situation to the best to kind of a climax. And then it goes down again in this um, in, in, in the, the second half cycle. Now, in this, uh, according to so in these in each cycle and every half cycle, actually, you have um, 63 great men called Mahapurushas um, that live in that at that time, and uh, it's kind of their stories, their biographies that make up this universal history. So these sixty-three great men are the twenty-four Tirthankaras. You know, they are they, you could call them kind of prophets. You know, who are um, born, who decide to renounce the world, and then uh, go and proclaim the the Jain religion among the people. Um, in addition to these 24 Tirthankara, so they live successively, yeah, and, and they, they're, they're never, they never live at the same time. In addition to that, we have 12 Chakravartins. Chakravartin um, is a character that also occurs in the Hindu traditions, in the Buddhist traditions. Um, they are generally, it's generally translated as universal emperor. Uh, there are political rulers, basically, who um, who uh, managed to conquer the six parts of Bharata, so actually the entire civilized world, you could say. Um, some of these are actually I later become Tirthankaras, um, and, and others are, I mean, they're always very closely associated um, to the Tirthankaras themselves. So you have these, and then you have nine sets of 
uh, nine triads, nine sets of three of a Baladeva Vasudeva and a Prati Vasudeva. Um, and the ninth, actually, the last set, um, and for those of you who, you know, who come from the, the Hindu traditions or, or, or the Indic traditions, you probably recognize the names of Baladeva, but certainly Vasudeva. Vasudeva is a well-known epithet for Krishna. Um, and then the Prati Vasudeva is just, you could call that the anti-Krishna. Um, so these characters are very much, um, how to say, um, you know, the, the blueprint of these stories of these nine Baladevas, Vasudevas and Prati Vasudevas is very much the story of Krishna. So the Baladeva is Balarama, the half-brother of Krishna um, in the ninth set, and the, 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 the uh, Vasudeva is then Krishna himself, and the Prati Vasudeva, or their enemy, is Jarasandha. So it's not Kamsa, as you might, might have guessed, but it's actually Jarasandha. Um, so this same blueprint we uh, is also projected on the eighth set of Baladeva, Vasudeva, Pratipadeva, and, and that is in fact um, Rama, Lakshmana, and Ravana. So the Balarama. So here what is interesting in the Jain tradition is that Krishna and Rama are not put on kind of on the same level. Actually here Rama is put on the same level as Balarama. Um, because he's the elder brother, and then the, the younger half-brother is then Krishna or Lakshmana, and their enemy is Ravana. Um, and so these stories um, as a whole are told in, um, or we find them in texts in literature, and these texts in the Jain tradition are called Puranas. Um, and in, in that sense, again, they offer kind of a counter-tradition to those um, popular uh, Hindu Puranas, um, you know, which really became very impactful um, in um, from around the, uh, the the Gupta period. Um, so it was kind of a measure, you could say, um, by the Jains to kind of have their own Purana. So Purana is a term used in also Charita or Charitra, meaning something like biography. Um, okay, so yeah, so. When we talk about the, um, I mean, uh, the title of, of the talk is on Jain Mahabharatas, and I haven't really addressed Mahabharatas yet. Um, and I will come to that now, because, of course, in the Mahabharata, as I already mentioned, you have this character of Krishna. Um, and it's, in fact, in the stories or related to the stories of the ninth Baladeva, Vasudeva and Prati Vasudeva, that we also find the story of the Pandavas. Um, um, and you see some kind of if some some um, distinct some different forms of this um, Mahabharata um, occurring in the Jain tradition. Um, so we find so-called yeah Jain prototype or prototypical form of the Mahabharata um, in the already in the uh, in the Jaina Agama, so the the Jaina Agama or the um, the canonical texts, these are considered um, the actual words of uh, Mahavira of the last uh, Tirthankara. Um, as you may know, in Jainism, there's actually two big groups, right? Two, I mean, some it's called sects. You have the Shvetambaras and the Digambaras. The main difference between the two groups is that the Digambaras. Um, the, the monks of the Digambara tradition, they are nude, they don't wear any clothes, they have no possessions, and the um, 
the monks of the Shvetambara tradition. I mean, it's all in the name. The ones who are, um, you know, who are dressed in white, they wear a white garment. Um, so this division between the two is something that grew historically. Um, and one of the main differences also between the two is that according to the Digambaras, um, the entire uh, canon, so the words of Mahavira once existed, it was once compiled, but over history it has gone, it, it became lost. So we don't have the original canon anymore, according to them. Now, according to the Shvetambaras, there is indeed um, a set of texts, according to them, that survived and that actually can be traced back directly uh, to Mahavira. Um, and a part of this, uh, in some of these texts, indeed, we find reference to, um, to Mahabharata or Mahabharata characters, including Krishna. Yeah. Um, so in the Uttaradhyayana Sutra, for instance, this is a popular, a very popular um, part of the, of the Agamas, uh, which contains lots of stories. And one of the stories narrated there is that of the 22nd Tirtankara. So the one before the one before uh, Mahavira, who was called Nemi, Nemi Nata or Arishta Nemi. And he is in fact the cousin um, of Krishna, the younger cousin of Krishna. Um, and we find there, um, you know, so here we have this association with uh, Krishna, which is very interesting. Um, and we find in this story that Krishna in fact, um, was instrumental to, um, to Neminata becoming a Tirtankara um, in the sense of his, you know, deciding to renounce the world. Um, so how the story goes is that uh, this uh, Arishtanimi, he was a young prince growing up um, at the court. Um, his older cousin Krishna saw that this young man was kind of, you know, was very mighty and very powerful. And according to some versions of the story, Krishna was getting a bit nervous because Krishna, you know, he was the big hero in the family and he didn't like it that, uh, you know, there was this youngster there who might, you know, end up being stronger than him. Um, of course, Krishna had some kind of... Um, insight in this again suggested in some of the stories into what might happen and krishna then says okay um what needs to happen now is that nemi needs to get married so um he arranges the the wedding to uh, rajimati um and um then you know in while the preparations are going on krishna takes his nephew um around he puts him in the chariot and he takes his nephew uh, or his cousin around in the um uh, around the city uh, to show him all the preparations for the wedding now as um in, part of these preparations are of course animals that will be slaughtered for the wedding feast and these animals are wailing. They are crying because they know that they will soon die. And Nemi is so touched by this, um, you know, by by the sight of these animals that he then and there decides to renounce the world. That he no longer wants to take part in the kind of the material world. And he so he he leaves his bride at the altar. Uh, you could say, and um, he goes and uh, becomes an ascetic and then, you know, attains this uh, omniscience and he becomes a, the Tirtankara who will spread the 
um, religion. So in that sense, Krishna is quite central to the to the story of uh, of Nehemi. So this we find in the Uttaradhyayana Sutra. Now, in um, one of the um, so this is just, I'm telling you this first because it's a very important story. It's not the oldest one. Actually, we have a very, um, one of the earliest, uh, according to scholars, is the Anta Kridashanga, the Anta Gadadasanga um, in Prakrit um, that contains all sorts of uh, material. And in this, um, so there's also narratives being told in that text. And in fact, of the um, of all the chapters of all the life stories about uh, you know renunciation, five of these chapters are actually about relatives or uh, described as relatives of Krishna. So, including the famous story of Gajasukumara, um, which is again very interesting that this character of Krishna somehow seems to be um, included in or, or kind of yeah drawn into. Um, this early Jaina lore. And then you have this Jnyatri Dharmakatha, the Naya Dhamakahao um, in Prakrit, that really very much focuses also on Krishna, where Krishna is described as the king of Dwarka. So this is in the later part, you could say, of the biography of Krishna. And here um, you have this, uh, the first focus or the first mention of the Pandavas. Right. Um, in the Jain story of Draupadi. Um, so Draupadi, you probably know, is a character that throughout South Asian history, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of issues about the Mahabharata and the character of Draupadi is one, in, especially her being married to five husbands. Right. Um, we have different accounts of the story even in the Mahabharata itself there's a you know there's there's all of these um issues going on that it's kind of accidental that Draupadi actually you know was supposed to be married only to Arjuna but it's because of some misunderstanding from Kunti's side that she then ends up being married to all of the Pandavas and I mean you know it's it's a it, it it's been a, a topic of debate um, and of course, also for the Jains. So um, what we find here in this canonical text is a first version of um, the reason why Draupadi, according to some, was married to five husbands. Um, and in a typical, a typically Jain way, um, this is, a, you know, this is due to Draupadi's previous life. Everything is due to your karma and to your, you know, what, what you did in your previous lives. And according to this uh, account here in the Agama, um, Draupadi in a previous life was a Jain nun. I mean, there's, di there's different life stories that are being told, but I'm just summarizing to the, the main one. So she is a Jain nun. She is in, uh, in the forest on the outskirts of a city. Um, she is meditating, and one day she sees a courtesan um, just, you know, passing by in the distance. And this courtesan is being wooed by five different men. And what happens to, to the nun, Draupadi, is that she is overcome by an ardent desire. Um, this is also a theme that is yeah, quite popular um, in the Jain tradition. It's called a nidana. And Nidana is a, a very strong desire that will really affect your, your next life. So she has this Nidana, this very strong desire 
you know, to also receive such attention from different men. And it's actually this Nidana when this nun dies that causes her in her next life to, you know, have five husbands. This is what is told in that story there. In addition, there's also a story of Draupadi um, being abducted. Um, and so in that sense, even though the focus is on Draupadi, of course, the Pandavas are mentioned and are there. So this is kind of the, the, the main... Um, yeah, the main presence of the Pandavas um, in the Jain Agama. So what do we remember from this is we have this connection. It's Krishna is very much present there. Krishna is the cousin of Neminata. So do you have the characters of Neminata, his biography that is told. In addition to that, we have Krishna and then we have also um, uh, the Pandavas. So yeah, I didn't mention that. So Krishna is the king of Dwaraka and one day, like in the uh, Vyasa Mahabharata, so, uh, or in the Vyasa, or is it, I, no, it's in the Harivamsha Purana, um, the Pandavas actually come and visit him in Dwarka. And so th that is the occasion when the story of Draupadi is actually told. Um, so these are interlinked, right? Krishna, you have Krishna, you have the Pandavas, you have Nimi. And that is kind of the prototype that is taken over um, in the earliest tradition um, after that, so um, yeah, moving on. Oh yeah, before I move on, it's important to, to mention that actually, whereas Krishna and the Pandavas are very much present in the uh, in the Jain Agama, Rama is not. Rama in the story of the Ramayana are completely absent. There is no mention, no reference to them. The only reference that is there is that um, Rama, Lakshmana, and Ravana are the uh, eighth Baladeva Vasudeva Prativasudeva. So it's just, I mean, it's an, an interesting contrast, uh, one could say. Um, so coming to the post-canonical uh, literature, um, we have um, authors writing, you know, the universal history, writing the Puranas. And one of the very early ones is, in fact, a Harivamsha Purana. It's a Digambara work um, dated to the 8th century um, AD um, and situated in southern Gujarat by Jinasena Punata. Um, so it's a work in 66 chapters. And within this entire work, so if you get the title Harivamsha Purana, the focus of is really, I mean, the title is quite clear that the focus is on Krishna and the story of Krishna, of these Baladeva Vasudeva, Prativasudeva. So Krishna and his relationship to Neminata and the biography of Neminata, those are kind of the more prominent ones, stories told here. And um, in addition to that, there are some chapters that deal with the Pandava story. So again, it's... Um, yeah, it's a, on, on a similar occasion, um, Krishna one day receives a visit um, from the Pandavas and he invites them to tell their story. So then they begin to tell their story about, you know, um, about their the problems with the Kauravas, the Lekker House incident, how they, etc., um, etc., et uh, you know, the, 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 the game of dice, the banishment to the forest. Um, but it's it's very brief. It's very condensed. It's uh, just in a few hundred um, verses that it's narrated in this Harivamsha Purana. Uh, what is furthermore very interesting here is that the battle of Kurukshetra, which in the Vyasa Mahabharata, and as, I mean, as we all know it, 
best is the great war between the Pandavas and the Kauravas, right? Now, what Jinasena does is he kind of transforms this battle into the war between the Vasudeva and the Prativasudeva. So the, the war in Kurukshetra isn't, I mean, you have the same factions, it's the same parties who do the fighting, but instead of it being the Pandavas and the Kauravas, you have Krishna, who has the Pandavas on his side, fighting against Jarasandha, who has the Kauravas on his side. Um, so that is, in fact, uh, what happens there. But of course, it's the same kind of, um, the outcome is the same, so to say, you know, that the the, the Pandavas pre prevail and Jarasandha and his, you know, um, allies, they, they die. Um, yeah, so this is uh, then another work where you find this story of... Um, in a very similar way, is that is the Uttara Purana of Gunabhadra. Um, it is better known as a kind of, you could call it almost a supplement to the uh, Adi Purana by Jinasena. This is another Jinasena than the Jinasena Punata. He is from um, from the south, from yeah, Malkit, Manyaketa. Um, and Jin, of Jinasena, we know that he was associated with the Rashtrakuta court. Um, in the ninth century, so yeah, roughly one hundred years after Jinasena Punata. So this um, this Jinasena and Gunabhadra, they composed together what is called the Mahapurana. So Jinasena wrote the Adi Purana, Gunabhadra wrote the Uttara Purana, and together this is the Mahapurana. And this is basically the entire um, universal history of the Jains. So it contains the stories in condensed form, of course. It contains the stories of all the 24 Tirthankaras, the 12 Chakravartins, and all the, so the nine triads. Um, and included there is also the, the story of Niminata and the story of, um, of the, the ninth Baladeva Vasudeva, Prativasudeva. And within that, as a, again, a smaller part, um, just a few verses, we have this reference to the story of the Pandavas. So it's very brief here. Um, so the first two, I mean, this is, you know, this is really, um, these are texts that could be considered like a, a literature, it's kind of a kavya. And we have, um, so the first two were Digambara, then we come in, in, um, in time, um, the first Shvetambara text, that is a, also a Mahapurana, um, but this one is composed in Prakrit in Maharashtri, uh, Maharashtri is Lanka or Shilacharya's Chaupana Mahapurisacharya. So the biography of the Chaupana of the 54 Mahapurushas. So the difference here is that Shilanka or at least his tradition doesn't count the Prativasudevas as Mahapurusha. So hence you have, according to his reckoning, only 54 and not 63. Um, he also hailed from Gujarat and lived there in the ninth century. So this is poetically, it's a very, you know, um, from a literary point of view, it's a very interesting text. It contains some of the accounts of the um, of some Mahapuranas, even in a dramatic form, so as a as a theater play, um, and it also has a kind of a sizable account of Niminata with some uh, references to the Pandavas in there. Um, so this is kind of 
I mean, they, these are the earliest ones. The next one in line is perhaps better known. I didn't mention it here um, because I just wanted to, you know, give give the early the earlier ones. From the 12th century, you have, of course, Hemachandras, Trishashti Shalaka, Purusha Charita, which also which follows this uh, Sri Lanka tradition. Um, but um, so we're here in the ninth century with Sri Lanka, and then around this time you see some some you know innovations you could say in these Jain Mahabharatas. So negotiating the prototype, um, and here we come to you know the texts that I prefer to work on in Upper Bramsha um, and um, the um, author, the Upper Bramsha author of by whom we have. The um the the uh, first attested works is Swayambhudeva. There were authors before him, but none of the works have survived. And Swayambhudeva composed, among others, both a Jain version of the Ramayana and a Jain version of the the Mahabharata or this um, and that is called the Ritanimi Charyu, or the Charyu means is Charita, the biography of Ritanimi, and that is Arishtanimi. So the title would um, would make us think that this is in fact the story of of this twenty second Tirthankara, right? Um, now that is certainly included there, but in fact uh, the title itself is is a bit misleading um, because in fact what we have here is that Swayambhu, you know, he he really deviates from this. Um, pattern where you have the focus on Niminata and Krishna, and then as a kind of a sub-narrative, we have the Pandava story. He switches it around. So this is very much all about, about the Pandavas, about the Mahabharata. Um, so Swayam, who uh, also belonged to the 9th, 10th century, um, from a Canada-speaking area that we know, but probably um, rather to the north, so uh, the area of Nashik, um, which is very much Maharashtra now, but in uh, historical, historically, the area of uh, the Canada speaking area was much larger than uh, what is now the state of Karnataka. It reached up much further north. So he composes in um, in Upper Bramsha, um, and indeed this work is mostly Mahabharata. So it's a work of uh, I think one hundred and five chapters in total. And for the most part, so from chapter 31 to 33 to 91, um, this is called the, the vast Yudakanda, and it gives the story of the 18-day war of the Pandavas and the Kauravas. And what is interesting is that there is none of this transformation of the you know the Kurukshetra war being about Krishna versus Jarasandha. No, it's very much the same story, the same format as we find it in in um, in the in, in Vyasa's Mahabharata. So it's the same character, it's the same order of events here. Only you know slightly um differentiated with some some Jain um yeah I mean the characters being Jain um, basically, but that really doesn't um, doesn't alter um, the events as they happen. So it's all about the war and about you know um, the the consequences, the terrible consequences of war. And that in itself, I mean, it's been said about the Vyasa Mahabharata that the main rasa 
is is the Shanta Rasa because it's it kind of you know it is so terrible that really it causes the audience to want to detach from the world which is very much you know in in kind of in line with um with this uh with these jain norms of of striving for this asceticism and, and detaching from the material world um and yeah the patron there is a patron mentioned a certain dhavalaya we know nothing um of him we know i mean all of the patrons of swayam who have this suffix of ayya as we have them now also still in Karnataka for, for these uh, um, uh, people, you know, the uh, Kanadigas. Um, so this is a first, yeah, innovative form, you could say, um, that despite the title really very much deals with, uh, with the Panava Charita. Now in the, um, oh yeah, um, this is, I'm, I'm just taking it chronologically. Um, so, Possibly, you know, within decades from Swayambhu, we have also in um, in in the Kannada language and uh, some uh, what further to the south of Swayambhu, uh, a very famous work called the Vikramarjuna Vijaya uh, by Pampa. You know, Pampa is one of the great poets of classical Kannada literature, um, and he wrote a work. Even though Pampa him himself was a Jain, he wrote a version of the Mahabharata that is, that is that really has very i mean it's 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 a generic you could call it a generic mahabharata that has that has nothing specifically jain about it of course this is also debated i mean there are some scholars who say yeah in in some of the details you find some jain elements there but it's not explicitly jain um, where you have the inclusion of a Nimi Charita, um, or, or where you have this frame, this narrative frame of the Jain universal history. So this is this is quite interesting. You know, why would a Jain author decide to abstain from this from this Jain narrative, even though it is there? Yeah. Um, now Pampa he wrote explicitly for a patron, a king, a royal patron, King Arikesari. Um, and he explicitly also um, parallels this king with Arjuna. Arjuna, as you know, is the great warrior, right? He is the um, the kind of the, the macho or the, the, the most manly of all the Pandavas. Um, and now this work, this uh, Vikram Arjuna Vijaya, um, was a subject of study of uh, Sheldon Pollock, um, and quite central to his um, to some of his thoughts on uh, you know the the um, regionalization and this kind of uh, um, the uh, how this you know the 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 um, the epics especially the Mahabharata kind kind of came to be localized in um, in in uh, in the different regions and then here in the uh, Canada speaking region so he says that refashioning a, a Sanskrit epic discourse on power, and he calls it a re-envisioning of the old trans-regional political order for another very different kind of world. So this is, according to him, also one of the reasons why Pampa chose not to follow a Jain uh, narrative, but chose to follow the Vyasa um, Mahabharata because of its political implications. Um, now, yeah, 
what's important is that Pampa was actually not the only one to, um, the only Jain to compose a non-Jain Mahabharata, even though Jain versions are there. Um, we have another poet who does um, a very similar thing in 13th century Gujarat, so a few centuries later, and that is Amarachandra and his Bala Bharata. Now, this is a, 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 a notorious work as, you know, it's, it's described as a, as uh, as Mahakavya, as a really very courtly poetry, um, and it completely follows the the, the story of uh, of Yasa. So it has no Jain traits whatsoever. It's divided into eighteen books, um, and it mentions it, it explicitly mentions as patrons the Brahmins of Vagada. So it's we have no royal patronage here but Brahmin patronage, interestingly. And to kind of complicate this, we have around the same time of Amarachandra, oh, oops, the next slide, also in Gujarat, slightly earlier, we have Devaprabha, De Suri, who writes the Pandava Charita, which indeed follows the Jain prototype. So it's a Pandava Charita, the focus is on the story of the Pandavas, but it includes the story of Niminata and that story of Krishna as the ninth um, Vasudeva. It's also like Amarachandra's work divided into 18 chapters, so 18 books. Um, and you see an attempt here by the author of um, to kind of to kind of fuse uh, different traditions to kind of find common ground, um, I mentioned this here. I've myself have not really done research on the Pandava Charita. It is um, one of our PhD students in Ghent, Simon Vinant, is actually focusing on this text, and he discovered that there is a lot of literal borrowing from Vyasa, so actually pieces from the Mahabharata, uh, important parts of the text are are literally you know, transplanted within this Pandava Charita, sometimes in a different context. I mean, this this um, intertextuality here is very um, interesting. So there's literal borrowing from Vyasa and at the same time also from Himachandra, that great um, predecessor of Devaprabha Suri, who was also from, uh, from the same area of Gujarat. Um, so yeah, this is, I think, um, this was kind of just my overview. There's many, many, many more versions, um, of the, uh, of the Jain Mahabharata or the Jain Harivamsha that are around and that circulate. Another former student, uh, from Ghent University is working on a version in, uh, in Braj Bhasha that comes from, um, uh, actually from Rajasthan. Um, which in, has its own kind of, um, yeah, interesting characteristics in the character of Draupadi and then this, uh, these Sati characters that come to the fore. Um, and consider this, uh, this, this presentation as kind of an, an invitation um, to have a look at these texts. They have a lot to offer and they, you know, um, there's a lot of them still around and a lot of work that still needs to be done. Um, so yeah, that is my presentation. Thank you very much for uh, for listening and I'm open to questions. If anyone has a question, I see in the chat. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Riva. <laughs> Welcome. Okay, we have a early question from Tarini. Yeah. 
Oh, Tarini. Hello. Yeah, I think uh, you can unmute yourself. Hi. Yeah, I think I'm on. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. yes. Right. Yeah, thanks so much. That was a really interesting talk. Um, so a lot of the Jaina texts that you talked about, some of them, especially the later ones, were kavyas of some kind. And um, like you said, the plot in the kavya often follows, um, or at least sometimes follows Vyasa rather than the Jaina narrative. I was curious as to where, how you think that world relates to the world of aesthetics, where people like Anandavardhan are saying that, well, it's okay to change up the plot if it's better for Rasa. So... Mm -hmm. Just how does it relate to the larger aesthetic world? Yeah. That's an interesting uh, point and an interesting approach, of course. That might also, I mean, as far as I know, neither Pampa nor Amarachandra are explicit about, you know, whether whether kind of aesthetics was the reason why they changed, why they kind of stepped away from um, from the Jane story. Um, but it would be very interesting to, you know, to look at it from that point of view. Um, I hadn't thought about it. So thank you for this suggestion. I think it's a really good one because we, we often, we tend to look at texts and think, oh, this is a Hindu text. Oh, this is a Jane text and really focus on it for, look at it through like a religious identity thing. Whereas it being Kavya, you know, right. form is often, I mean, you know, or not not form, but but um, aesthetic effect is superior to kind of, yeah, I don't know, adhering to, to any tradition or I mean, or at least there is a kind of tension there. So it's really interesting uh, uh, that you that you make that point. I think it's a, uh, it, it would be good to have a look at these texts through that lens. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Professor, I was Professor Tarani, I was she teaches a course from the Mahabharata at Flame, so very yeah. relevant from her. Uh, any other question before I ask my Sanjay Gur? Yeah, um, firstly, thank you, Professor Eva. That was uh, so much knowledge for me today. Um, so this is coming from uh, rather one of my students' assignments, I would say. Um, so in the in the at the start of the presentation, you mentioned that um, Jainism at the heart of the Jainism is lies the ethos of ascetism. Uh, but also we know um, the Jain community as one of the affluent communities. So how does one reconcile to the fact that it is? Uh, focusing both on asceticism and uh, materialism, probably. Yeah, I mean, this is something that it 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 looks very kind of like a paradox, right? I I do, and this is something that scholars have also thought about, you know. But the one does not have to exclude the other. Um, you could say that the focus is on the ideal. Of, of the ascetic who renounces the world. But at the same time, not everyone needs to become an ascetic. And also ascetics to be, yeah, it, it's, it sounds strange to say, to speak of an ascetic as successful, but in, for them to be able to attain their goal of, of um, you know, detachment of the world, they need support of the community. Historically, they always needed the support of the community. Um, and in many, many texts, you find that, you know, I mean, 
there is this general um, Indian thing also of, of, you know, the Purusharthas, right, of Dharma, Artha, Kama, and then sometimes Moksha is added there. And it's also present in Jainism. There is this kind of balance um, that needs to be there. Not so much from for the for the um, for the ascetics. I mean, they have their goal, and that is going through this, you know, the gunastanas and reaching reaching enlightenment. It's you could this. They are very much self centered in a way, um, but. Also, I mean, part of the, the Jain doctrine is that you have these different parts of the community. Jainism, Jainism is not only about ascetics. You have four parts of the community, and these are the monks, the nuns, and then the laymen and the laywomen. And all of them are part of the community and are equally important in the community, and they should all be there. Because without, if, if one of them is missing, then there is that you know there is no support for the Jain Dharma anymore. So that I, and of course, yeah, traditionally they, I mean, all kinds of reasons are are given for why the Jain community is such an affluent community. Um, historically, some sometimes what is mentioned is that you know because because of this ahimsa vow that that um, uh, Jains were never allowed to actually work with. With with living material, so things like farming was was you know not uh, um, was considered by some to be not appropriate. But at the same time, you do have Jain farmer communities. You know, it's, I mean, there is also no one Jainism historically. There's a lot of lot of variation also there. Um, what we do find interestingly, for instance, in um, in Belgium, where I come from, we have uh, also an affluent Jain community in the Antwerp diamond business. Um, and I found it quite striking that from in some of the earliest inscriptions in Mathura that you find um, of, of uh, the Jain inscriptions, that it is mentioned that actually the, uh, um, the, the, the lay person who sponsored, I don't know, it was, was it an installation of an image or something or, or a, a temple that he was a, a, a dealer in money ratna. So in, in, in gems. So this, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's necessarily linked to the doctrine or just the two were kind of intertwined, but somehow, um, yeah, the, the, the Jainism kind of, was adopted by by these merchant communities. I think in a similar way also to Buddhism in the early period. It seemed to have been these, uh, you know, Vaishya communities, these Banias who decided to to kind of um, and all kinds of explanations are there. Um, but I mean that said, you know, there are Jain. The Jain tradition is very rich in narratives. Um, and there's many narratives about Jain merchants. Um, more probably more narratives about Jain merchants than about Jain kings. Right. Thank you, Professor. Welcome. Thank you. Any other question by any other attendees? Uh, if not, I have a small question. Uh, maybe we have, least, I think, four minutes before our next presentation. Okay. The time. Uh, my question is. Uh, what, ha what exactly happens to the, all the gruesome carnage of violence that is happening in the Mahabharata? Does it get genophyte somehow? The All the violence becomes non-violence? How? If, if yes, then how? It's this kind of, I mean, it's like in, in the Jain Ramayana. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm better 
acquainted with the Jain Ramayanas, but it's very simple. There's a lot of, and I was surprised, you know, as a, as at 22, starting to read these Jain Ramayanas, I sort of assumed that it's going to be full of lectures on how not to be violent, but it's not. There's so much violence oh. in there. But at the same time, there's the message of how how gruesome and 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 how you know um it 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 does kind of you know like watching a horror movie yeah might kind of make you think oh <laughs> all the blood and gore and then just, the yeah. idea of bringing it bringing you into a state that you Oh no, I don't want anything to do with the physical world anymore. I mean, this is, and sometimes it's it's mentioned explicitly, you know, that some person is lamenting the death of of someone, and it's oh look and how this this physical body and how terrible and how it, it's smelly and whatever. And we should focus on you know on on our jiva, on our soul, and and really go for um, yeah for for go for yeah for the, the more the kind of personal transformation and the, you know our karmic um state mm -hmm. yes Tarini, you have a point to add or ask um, i see yeah tarini has a now i'm wondering if ananda varnana wasn't reading some of them maybe he was <laughs> I know I get I I to be honest I think for the Jane except for Pampa and then this uh, Balabharata I think that um, the readership I have the impression that it is you know for the most part within the Jane community although I think and Tarini we discussed this yesterday some of the elements do seem to hmm. creep into other texts yeah all right. Anybody else? All right. If not, I think let's get ready for our next presentation. Yeah. Thank time. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the excellent, insightful presentation on several prototypes of Jain Mahabharata and Krishna and so on. So Krishna is going to hell according to Jain text, right? Yes. And, but not Ram. <laughs> not Ram, no. That's Krishna so goes to hell, but in some future existence, he will be a Tirthankara. So and it's not so bad. <laughs> yes. All right. So our next presentation is by Professor Tina Vekemans. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Hopefully, okay. All right. So I'll start with reading her bio a little bit and then she can take over. So Professor Tina Vekemans holds the prestigious Acharya Mahapragya Chair for Jain Studies at Kent University, also in Belgium. Her work on contemporary Jainism and Jainism outside of South Asia combines textual and anthropological methods and approaches Jainism from the day-to-day -day experiences and practices of Jains. Her courses include Modern History of South Asia, Society and Current Affairs of South Asia, and specialist seminars on migration, modernity, contemporary Jainism, and Jain texts in Hindi and Gujarati. That's quite uh, enormous areas to cover. So all yours, professors. Welcome again. Thank you very much. I'll just see if I can share my screen as yeah. it should be shared. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. Right from the start. Yeah, um, 
Okay, so um, thank you very much, Professor Jane. It's uh, lovely to be here. We've been spending a couple of days on the campus of Flame, and we've uh, been enjoying the tranquility a lot. It does indeed make room for thought and work and writing, um, and luckily also for presenting. Um, so I wanted to start very briefly um, by telling you a little bit more about my approach to Jane studies as um, Eva and our, I are close colleagues and share sort of um, our Sanskrit teachers and, and Eva taught me some Prakrit as well. But my approach to Jainism is much less literature and text centered than um, Professor de Klerik and Eva's is. Um, I work mainly on contemporary Jainism um, and the basis of my research so far has always really been ethnographic. I start from the experience and the practices of Jains themselves and now in approaching Jain migration history, the, the memories of Jains and Jain families, um, rather than from doctrine or text. That is not to say that text isn't present in my research at all, as you will see in today's presentation. So these are um, my two most recent um, publications. Digital and Diaspora is a book based on my PhD research, which came out Ergon, and then uh, earlier this year, a chapter um, appeared in Living Folk Religions, um, a volume by Routledge. Um, and it's in an interesting way connects to my talk today. So if you're interested in the concept of Jain mendicants and mendicant-like figures being present outside of South Asia, then I will direct you to this volume where you can read um, my encounters with a sadhu that came for lunch in Atlanta, um, and which puzzled me greatly. And puzzlement and, and kind of um, not understanding a situation can be really powerful um, sort of in coming to an understanding can be a really powerful methodological moment. Right. Um, before I get started with my talk of today, I want to recognize the input of um, some of my colleagues and friends. Um, the text that I will be reading from today was um, found in a, a manuscript collection by Professor John Court, who uh, just had time to take a picture of the first page before he had to leave. Then uh, Eric Villalobos, uh, currently at Emory University, um, went back to scan the entire thing, um, for which we're very thankful and is also here today, I think. Um, he also sort of talked me through the um, the type of mendicant the author of this text is. So um, I'm leaning very heavily on his work. Um, and then you have some people um, based in East Africa, in Kenya, mostly like Pushpen Rasha, who is the um, person in charge of a large Facebook group called the Oshful Memory Project. And people based in London, such as Hashmi Tasha, who you see in the picture, and um, Professor Atul Shah, who actually gave a talk for Flame earlier this year on Indic finance, together with Devin Rajain, Professor Devin Rajain, um, with whom I have an ongoing Jain migration history project. The title of my talk, as announced, is Oh Maharaj, Take These Lemons. Um, it's supposed to be a little bit of a puzzling title. I will, in the coming um, half hour, 45 minutes, I will talk you through these lemons. And by the end, I hope you will know what I'm talking about. It has two subtitles by now. It keeps on growing. Um, Jains and Jainism in East Africa, but also a singularly interesting source text to learn about them. So let's jump in and try to figure out more about these lemons. 
With me stood a crowd of brothers and sisters who related their experiences of the sea by way of advice to me. Oh, Maharaj, take these lemons with you, because the sea gets very choppy. Okay, I said in reply. Another said, yes, Maharaj, the food on the steamers is good at times, but not always. Fruit is good for this. I listened to everyone's advice. Amidst congratulations and well wishes, I proceeded to finalize formalities and was guided to the dock to board the steamer. Our passports were checked and our pictures taken. But security was less tight than we had expected. Perhaps our white robes caused the officials at the dock some surprise, and they dared not disturb us. Indeed, at six o'clock, we stepped onto the stairs of the steamer. On the one hand, I was going abroad for the propagation of religion. On the other, the enthusiasm of the crowd at the dock was like the motherland calling me back. As I boarded the steamer, I was conflicted. My heart was beating with the echoes of various futures, and my mind was restless. Um, everything I read is an English translation, which I made from a Gujarati um, original, and I am so very much to blame if there's any um, in inaccuracies or problems with the translation. I just need to add that um, kind of as a reminder. So what am I reading from? I am reading from a travelogue um, consisting of more than 400 pages in Gujarati, which was published in 1952 by a Jain organization in, um, in Gujarat. These 400 pages consist of some preliminary chapters, which are really quite sort of more in sort of the philosophy of culture, the philosophy of civilization, um, and then the philosophy of religion, um, called light and darkness and then the currents of culture. Um, it's interesting to see that this combines kind of a state of affairs of Jainism and of where the Jain society should be at this point in time when it is written, but it also more broadly thinks of ancient civilizations such as the one in India, but one in Mesopotamia and Egypt is also mentioned, and how they have fared throughout world history. So it's a really very broad introduction to what is essentially sort of the culture and civilization in the Western Indian Ocean. Um, the travelogue then um, continues with accounts of some travels that the author did within India to Malabar to Kutch, um, and then comes to a chat of mass passed in Karachi um, in 19. 45. The slide says it's actually 1944. I'm sorry for this inaccuracy. Um, and then the next chapters account, give an account of travels, travels to Aden and Addis Abeba, and then travels to the British East African territories, and then Uganda and other countries. Um, if we put that on a um, map, we can see the most important locations which are mentioned in a travelogue. The light green ones in India, and what was British India, uh, Karachi is now in Pakistan, of course, they're the main points um, of focus in India. Bombay, where the steamers leave, two steamers in this story, one um, to Aden and that um, Gulf of Aden region, and one to East Africa. Um, Karachi, where the invitation to travel arrives, and Porbandar, which is where the Jain Sang, the Jain organization is, which will eventually then um, publish this book. Um, we see that in this first trip 
Aden is the main location because the um, invitation comes from the Aden Shrisang. Um, but Djibouti in Ethiopia, um, Abyssinia, uh, as it is referred to in Travelog, are also visited. Um, in the second trip, Mombasa is the first port of call because that is where the initial invitation came from. But the uh, author actually visits locations in Kenya, in Uganda, which isn't really even on the map. I couldn't make it work. Uh, but also Tanzania and Dar es Salaam and Zanzibar. So it is quite um, um, a busy schedule um, these days. Uh, Eva and I sometimes complain about how busy our days are in our um, two and a half week trip to India, but they are perhaps nothing like as busy as the days of this author who does this sort of two trips within a span of 11 months. Um, what does he write about leaving and sort of the sense of going abroad? Um, Familiar society has become accustomed to listening to sermons, meaning that they understand the practice of it. They do not take time to implement the sermon when it is done. While the unfamiliar society listens eagerly to the sermon, thinks carefully, and tries its best to implement it. This is why I've always accepted invitations from unfamiliar places. Who is this person writing? Who is this person sort of reminiscing and, and thinking about different audiences to give lectures to, to preach to, and the reaction of different audiences. Um, the author is Yati Hemchandra, who is a member of a Yati lineage within the broader Lonka Gach, uh, which sort of came to the fore in the 16th century. We don't have an exact date of birth or date of death. Uh, we do have an exact date for his Diksha under uh, Yati Swarup Chandra, which was um, so done in um, April 1939. Now we know that this Yati Hemchandra, the author of the book that I am reading from to you, is a guru by of another Yati, Yati Raj Chandra, who interestingly is one of the very few, if not only other, um, that we know of that have traveled outside of South um, Asia at, in that kind of time. Yati Chandra went to the other side, so not East Africa, but Southeast Asia. Um, and I'm looking into finding dates and more details on those travels as well. Um, Yati Chandra was quite influential. Um, it was quite influential giving speeches around um, time of independence as well. So religious, but also political speeches. And he became the administrative head of the lineage after his guru, Swarup Chandra, died. Um, so what's Yati? Um, some people will know, others might not. Um, I spent a considerable time studying Jainism from a contemporary perspective without ever sort of encountering this category. But Yatis dominated Shvetamar Jainism in the early modern period, especially in Gujarat and Marwa Rajasthan region. And they are mendicants. Um, often the title Yati and title Sadhu were used interchangeable, interchangeably, but Yatis are sort of, if, if anything makes them special, it's an alternative interpretation of the Jain monastic code. They take the five 
spouse of a traditional Jain mendicant, but they are known to travel by vehicle, handle money, and engage in some um, in some cases in practical sciences like astrology, Ayurvedic medicine, and mantra making. Now I say in some cases because in the case of Yatihim Chandra, there's no indication that he really um, spends time on this kind of activities, but we'll get to that later. Um, now, from the 19th century, there's been some reforms in both the lay and mendicant Jain communities, and they have, by the mid-20th uh, century, so by the time that we encounter Yatihem Chandra and he, he travels, these lineages are kind of almost at their end. They are nearly eliminated, not entirely, though, um, and that is where Eric's research comes in. There are still some pockets, some lineages, some families of Yatis about, but as a tradition, um, as sort of fully initiated um, Yatis sitting on a Gadi, on a, on a sort of Yati seat, that is nearly completely eliminated and was already um, much de in decline by the time Yatihim Chan writes. Um, so that makes this travelogue also very interesting from the point of view of the history of reform and counter-reform in Jainism, especially sort of Jainism of mendicants, ascetic Jainism um, in that mid-20th century. And in the travelogue, we read about our um, Yati encountering others. Um, I'll read to you again. I spoke to him directly. Him, in this case, is a sadhu that he meets in Karachi, where he's spending his chetumas. Telling him that if he was willing, I would like to give a lecture with him. Um, and before he writes this, he um, said that this is a sadhu that he heard a lot about and that is apparently a great scholar of languages. Um, so he's actually looking forward. He's, from his writing, you get the impression he's looking forward to this. But the response I got from him, he writes, was, you are not worthy to lecture with us. I was sad. This was not worthy of a scholar of virtue, but a specter of pride. When I asked why they looked at me with such hatred, the answer was, we know Yatis. In Marwar, you people have spread much deception. When hearing this answer, I ceased making any further pleas or requests from this Muni. The Yati Sampradai of Marwar, he um, writes a little bit later, has fallen out of favor with the public today. Gujarati Yatis, which is the kind of group that he is part of, should take care not to represent the mendicant values, should take care to represent the mendicant values of modesty and knowledge. On many occasions, such monk have, monks have undertaken to interrupt my lectures, but I will not go into that now, as I am unsure if I will even call them monks. It can be quite sharp in his writing. But for myself, I'm satisfied, and I don't deceive or try to make myself look special. I consider myself blessed. I'm a yati, I behave like a yati. If I were to do the work of Yati in the guise of a sadhu, and then he means a Samvegi sadhu, his criticism would, would apply. But as I do not, it doesn't. From this text, you clearly see that there's different groups involved. Um, Him Chandra writes as a Gujarati Yati. Um, and he gets into this, not really an argument, that there's clearly tension between him and this Samvegi sadhu, this um, what we now would call sort of the traditional sadhu. Um, 
there's clearly a tension based on the Sanvegi Sadhu saying, Yatis, they are lax. They get into all of these kind of tantric behaviors, which aren't worthy of a true mendicant. From his side, Himchandra clearly sort of looks at the Sanvegi Sadhus and says, well, look at this pride, which isn't really worthy of Jain mendicant. Look at how they embrace sectarianism rather than um, approach the world from sort of a non-sectarian viewpoint. But then you also see, although um, in the travelogue he doesn't encounter any yatis from Marwar, he has sort of heard the... Um, the, the the sadhu's comments about the laxity and about sort of the, the tantric meddling of yatis and says, well, but they're they're the ones from Marwar. Um and for him clearly that that's sort of they're bad publicity. And we will see later on that he could not steer more clear from mantra making and tantra and um and and, and sort of healing activities um if he tried. Right? So he clearly distances himself from that. But we'll come back to the ideology um, that is clearly present in the travelogue later. Um, first, I want to read to you guys some more from the text. I want to read to you um, how Yati Himchandra gets an invitation to go and embark upon this quite impressive travel around the Western Indian Ocean. One day, a householder came to me and asked Maharaj Tri, would you come to Mombasa? I was surprised. Mombasa? For Jain Yati, this is indeed a matter of wonder. And I well understood what such an endeavor would mean. Going to Africa means crossing the ocean. But I was thrilled at the thought that the type of work that I'd been doing within India could be spread to Africa. The benefits I have received through listening to your lectures could also greatly benefit our Gujarati brothers who have settled there. And if you do not provide these brothers of ours living far away with such benefit, the word in Gujarati's lab, who will? That householder was Sri Bhagwanji Hansraj, the leading activist of the all-Africa Mombasa Sri Svetambar Deravasi Sang. And the only picture I could find of him is actually a picture of a picture which is in the snack and sweet shop of um, his family even today in East Africa. Um, so with that... The invitation has been delivered and Yatihim Chandra describes how he starts looking at his options, how he tries to come to a decision of what to do. Because indeed, even though Yatis are um, known to have traveled by car, by train, uh, by all kinds of transport, in 1944, when this invitation comes, Crossing the ocean, boarding a steamer, still seems like a very, very unusual thing to do, even for them. But then, also from the beginning, like he says, you feel, you read from the text, he wants to go. He wants to take them up on this invitation. He's already, in previous chapters, described how he feels that travel to... Um, lesser-known regions within India, to Kutch, to Malabar, has greatly sort of expanded his horizon and he finds it very satisfying and a very um, sort of a learning experience. So he writes, what's the current status of Jainism? What was once the religion of Kroors, today is not even that of Laks. And how many cracks have appeared even within these Laks? 
There is nothing left but cracks and strife between groups and subgroups, which has disintegrated the strength of the Jain society. I shuddered as I realized it all. How unreligious has a society that worships the nonviolence of Mahavir become? Thoughts came to me and my mind began to spin. What would be the condition of the Jaina living far away? What will be the circumstances of the Shravaks in that world across the ocean who have lived there for years? I wanted to see it all myself, but what would society say? So he ponders this, uh, but in the end, you know, he's in, in Karachi, he has to give lectures, and in the evening he goes to bed, and he hopes, I would assume, to have a good night's rest. But, alas, um, this will not happen, because he has a very interesting dream, in which a specter appears in his room and talks to him. What is the problem, says this specter, says this ghost. I have traveled three times. I lectured as an expert on Pali languages at universities in Europe. And along with that, Jainism was propagated. The society there developed a curiosity about Jain philosophy. I converted many carnivores to vegetarianism and softened the hearts of the bloodthirsty. So spreading the glow of the lamp of knowledge far and wide as it should be. I have presented to the world the precious knowledge which Mahavir gave to the world. I've broken the old system and abolished customs and have spread the religion abroad. So what is stopping you? So no no rest for um, Yatihim Chandra that night. The specter that visits him is um, Pandit Jinvijayji speaking. Now Pandit Jinvijayji was a former monk who renounced mendicancy and set sail by sea in 1928 um, to different locations, but mostly to Europe. Um, and he then went into education um, in Gujarat and other places. But in another place in the travelogue, he, um, meaning the author, speaks more about Pandit Jinvijayji. How the Jain community was in uproar when he left. People denounced his decision and even tried to prevent it. However, this opposition was caused by a lack of true understanding and a cling to narrow personal beliefs. Discounting all that, Pandiji traveled abroad. And let me tell you, if he had had the full support of our fortunate society, he would have been able to spread Jain literature, culture, and philosophy much more widely still. But society has always misunderstood such people, and it still does. And in the sharpness of how he writes this, you feel that he knows that he's going to encounter opposition, both within sort of lay society, and he's going to get get backlash from uh, parts of that mendicant society as well. He anticipates this. But still, he is quite clearly adamant about his decision. And on September 24th in 46. Um, he boards the steamer for a second time. This time he already went to Aden. How he goes to Aden before Mombasa, Mombasa I'll briefly tell you, it has everything to do with geopolitics um, at the time. Um, so the Mombasa invitation comes first. And the fact that he accepts after conferring with his guru, um, also sort of the word of that spreads as well. But to go to Mombasa, there's visa formalities that needs to be taken care of and they take quite a while now before his visa to Mombasa can actually be delivered the the Jain Sang in Aden has learned of the fact that a mendicant, mendicant has says, said yes to an invitation to preach overseas 
So they extend an invitation. And because Aiden, not at that time, but until less than 10 years before, was actually governed as part of the Mumbai presidency, um, the visa um, formalities were much less stringent. So he actually ends up going to Aden while waiting for his visa to Mombasa. He boards the steamer a second time um, and crosses the ocean a second time in September 46. And this is how he arrives in East Africa. When they woke up in the morning, everyone was trying to catch a glimpse of Kalindi Harbor in the distance. When I woke up, I too remembered that we would reach Mombasa today, and I too tried to see our destination from within the cabin. It was drizzling outside, and in the dim light, the buildings and the harbor front appeared within my sight. Along with my brother, who's traveling with one other um, yati, I started to pack. At six in the morning, the steamer moored at Kalindi Harbor and I felt the cables being stretched. At the harbor, the leader and men, members of the Shri Stanakpasi Jain Sang were present to welcome me. It was raining heavily, but this did, did not seem to burden the hearts of the people. Indeed, I was very happy to see many brothers and sisters on this occasion. As soon as I put my feet on solid ground, the celebration started. Um, so I'll briefly present the communities he visits and how they developed in the places that they did. Um, so Jains and other Indian um, communities have been present in East Africa for a good long while. But for most of history, almost all migration around that Western Indian Ocean was circular migration, meaning that um, people involved in trade would venture out Persian Gulf, Gulf of Aden, East Africa um, in one season and then come back carrying other goods um, back to India um, a few months later, depending on the monsoon winds and currents. Um, uh, in the 19th century, this starts to change, the pattern changes, and more and more, we see more and more pockets of settled migration, and the number of people settling, so number of, number of people from India settling around this Western Indian Ocean uh, also increases. Now, why does this change? Um, this has to do with modes of transport and availability of alternative modes of transport, so alternative to the Dao. Um, but it also has a lot to do with uh, colonialism and empire. Um, because we see that on the other side, so the non-Indian side of the Western Indian Ocean, the British um, gain more and more territory, more and more colonies, which they seek to, um, to build up and its colonialism exploit, right? Um, so Aden becomes theirs quite early, even under the East Indian Company, and is then, as I said, under the Bombay Presidency until 37, governed directly from there. So it's governed as a part of British India for the longest time. Zanzibar becomes a British protectorate in 1890, um, closely followed by the East African Protectorate, which will become Kenya in 95, um, the protector of, of Uganda even one year earlier in 94. 
Um, and then Tanganyika was first German East Africa, but after the First World War or during the First World War, it becomes also becomes um, comes under British influence in 1916. So because of this, because it's all kind of part of this British Empire, um, groups of people move. Um, let me try to kind of give you a bit of a, a structured view of this. So you have British and other European settlers um, in these East African um, protectorates, more and more. Um, you have an emerging local economy, but to the sentiment of the British, this emerging local economy needs help. It needs people with a head for business to come in and sort of help make this into a, a sort of a monetary economy rather than an economy of barter, um, which is a process that in India had become much, begun much earlier. And so they know how to work with these Indian traders. There's also a lot of indentured labor. Um, indentured labor, the British have abolished formal slavery, but they've thought of the system, um, which other um, colonial nations also use of um kind of usually five-year contracts, uh, which brings mostly Indian laborers to these other colonies, to plantations as far as Mauritius and Fiji, but also um, an enforce to um, East Africa um, to um, construct infrastructure like railways, um, um, roads, etc. Now, some of these indentured laborers stay and settle in the place that they initially came to work temporarily. And this is also quite a sizable group. And together, these European settlers, this local economy, these indentured laborers and these post-indentured settlers make up quite an interesting sort of market. And it is this market, this group of people with demands for food and utensils and everything, which also really accelerates independent migration to these East African protectorates. Um, and it's in this independent migration that we need to look for the chains. Um, not necessarily that they come as very rich businessmen, but they do um, migrate to East Africa, mostly to set up businesses to cater to this newly emerged market that they are actually quite well placed to cater to because they know of the cultural background of these indentured laborers and post-indentured settlers and they are more used to more used than the, the the local african communities to dealing with the british and the europeans so this picture is a picture of indentured laborers working on the lunatic line which was the mombasa kampala railway line which was constructed and finalized around 1900. Um, about 32,000 um, Indian laborers worked on that. It cost the life of at least 2,500 because it was truly a lunatic project through um, deep jungle um, with a lot of lions, um, etc. Um, but this kind of explains how there's a big Indian community in East Africa and the reason why giant traders also increasingly went there and in a, migrate in a more settled way. Now, if we look at how these communities devolve, um, develop, it's really, I mean, and this will, won't be a big surprise to, to many of you, it's, it kind of follows uh, 
pattern of sorts. Um, mainly, first, a sentinel migrant is sent out by a family, or sometimes we have accounts of an entire village sort of chipping in to buy a ticket um, for one of their own to go and set up a business. And then in the second wave, when this business is successful, which often it is, but sometimes it isn't, we also have cases of these sentinel, sentinel migrants just coming back, yeah, um, having to save up money to be able to come back to India. When there's some success, the second wave of migration follows, and then usually it's a brother or a nephew or someone else of the village coming to join this business. So it grows quite gradually at first. Um, the first Jains that we know of to be in East Africa um, are just at the end of the 19th century and a few more coming in the beginning of the 20th. And then the growth is quite gradual until um, sort of the interbellum, let's say. And then we see more movement, more things happening. Now, why do we see more things happening? Because as this group, which is initially um, gender-wise quite male, because they're the traders, they're the ones conducting the business, this group grows and realizes that they are there for a longer period of time. It doesn't necessarily have to be forever, ever in their minds at that time, but that they will lead a more or less settled life there. Wives come into the picture um, children are brought up. You see here in the picture the family of Keshav G. Parbat, who arrived in Kenya in 1905 as one of the first. Um, his family picture in the 40s, it's, this says circa 1940, but with the amount of grandchildren in the picture that can't really check out, so it's probably a little bit later. It's probably around the time that the author of our travelogue travels there. Um, anyway, you see children that have been born to these giant communities in East Africa. And the moment you have not only the traders focused on their business, but also the families, the wives, the children having to sort of have some upbringing and some notion of sort of cultural background and religious background, religious values, community organizations emerge rather rapidly. And with community organizations comes in a slightly later phase, infrastructure. Infrastructure meaning temples, but also cultural centers, Mahajanwa, these um, schools are set up as these businesses are more and more successful and as these communities become more wealthy, they develop their own educational um, infrastructure, their own medical infrastructure, sports infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in the travelogue, we read about the type of people that um, the Yati Hemchandra encounters and just very general, he uh, about... Mombasa says there's Kuchis, there's Katiawaris, and there's Gujaratis. And on the whole, we can actually say that for East Africa, the first migration, mainly to um, to Zanzibar, is mainly from Kuch. Then Katiawar, and then the Gujaratis. The Gujaratis arrive slightly later than these other groups. But by the time he travels, these are the three communities that he finds. There's also an Indian association of which they are part, and the Mahila Mandal too. The Jain Derasa of Mumbai is a Tirt for the Ravasi brothers living in East Africa. Apart from this, there is the Jain Gyanvardhan Vadak Mandal. 
But it is the Vanek Society that is most organized and flexible and organizes Jainism-related activities for the whole Jain society. And then the Vanek Society is mostly the Oshwal Society because uh, the majority of Jains then in uh, Mombasa um, comes from the Oshwal groups um, from Gujarat. Um around Jamnagar. Um, and there's also sort of a smaller Navnat group, which kind of groups other um, people from that region which do not come from the traditional Oshwal villages. Um, this is probably, um, someone will be able to, to nuance this, but that is probably the shortest um, way to conceptualize this. The travelogue is really interesting because it gives an insight into these communities as they are in full development just after the Second World War. A lot of migration during the World War, things were sort of at a standstill, but a lot of migration is coming in at the, just at the end of the World War and just after. Um, these communities are in full development, organizations are in full development. Um, and it's really interesting to read in detail about how many people are where in which villages, what organizations do, what kind of events. It's extra interesting because it's very rare to find information specifically on Jain communities um, in these places at that time. It's also really interesting because um, we know that less than 20 years after the Yati's visit, after the situation that described to us, everything changes. Um, shifts and a decline of this community is kind of imminent. If you can call it imminent, if there's 20 years to go. Um, the Zanzibar revolution will come, the Aden emergency and an Aden independence will mean the practical end of the Jain community there. The situation in Kenya is going to be difficult throughout the Mau Mau rebellion and the Africanization policies that follow independence. Um, Tanzania will see its socialist reforms and its own brand of Africanization. And then um, probably the most dire of them all in 1972, um, the expulsion of South Asians from Uganda by Idi Amin will um, end the Jain community there um, for at least 20 years. Now, today, there's again Jains in Uganda, but they are not the same Jains that were there before. Um, in the picture, you see the Shri Kuchi Svetamba Jain temple in Stone Town, Zanzibar, often claimed to be the oldest Jain temple outside of South Asia, but the one in Aden is actually older. But when it was built, it was part of the, the sort of British India. So it, it counts and it doesn't count. Either way, this is one of the temples which has a claim to be the oldest built in 1905. Um, interestingly, because we're talking about these shifts and the decline of these communities, um, the Zanzibar revolution kind of ended the Jain community in Zanzibar. Um, and they took the, um, the statues, the multis from this temple, first to Dar es Salaam and then to Nairobi. Um, the community in Zanzibar at that time kind of reconfigured a little bit, merged with the community in Dar es Salaam. But then a few years later, with the reforms in, uh, in post-independence Tanzania, again, sort of, it didn't disappear, but it was decimated and has definitely changed very much since then. Um, another picture here, you see um, a Mahajanwadi Hall in Mbala. Mbale. It was inaugurated in 61. Um, so, but 11 years later in 72, um, when all of the South Asians had to leave Uganda, um, it was um, nationalized and was then turned into a school. So this um, 
new hall, which is was inaugurated with a lot, with a lot of, of of sort of pride and a lot of happiness, um, existed for exactly um, eleven years before um, everything changed. Right. Um, so after nineteen seventy two, you see a complete change and a reconfiguration. Um, I'm not going to go into details because I will go over time quite uh, horribly, but it's good to know that, um, for example, the Jain community in London um, is the vast majority of them have an East African connection. So this story of Jains in East Africa that I tell now from the point of view of the mid 20th century is still very much relevant in the practices and in the way and in the family histories of Jains in other places um, in the world today. Um, also in the travelogue, we see the welcome letter that the um, Sri uh, Visa Oshwal Vanik Society gives to um, the Yati upon his arrival in Mombasa. I'm not going to read it to you because, again, not enough time. Um, but one of the things I say is, well, clearly here in East Africa, we haven't been able to um, follow Jainism sort of completely as we should, but we hope that you coming here will set us on the right path and we are very dedicated to do so. So from this letter, from sort of this idea that, okay, we, we need your, your expertise, we need your engagement because we need to be led down the right path, it makes us wonder what exactly does this Yatihem Chandraji preach? And then, and that's the last thing I will talk to, to you guys about, uh, it's interesting to see what ideology is in the travelogue. So remember this triad of the Samvegi Sadhus, uh, the Gujarati Yatis and the Marwari Yatis, with sort of um, mentions of laxity and Tantra um, um, and, and allegations of sectarianism and pride on the other side, right? And also remember that we're in the 1940s, world affairs, things are changing rapidly. Um, the invitation comes to the Yati during World War II, he travels just after World War II. We are at that point one year before Indian independence. Um, also in other places in the world, sort of the struggles for independence and uh, anti-colonial nationalism are on the rise. So things are happening fast. We also see after World War II, the sort of the pre-formation of the Cold War with these two power blocks in the world, um, communism on one side and uh, the West and sort of the, the gradual rise of American power on the other side. So all of that is at the background. And what does then Oriati preach? He actually does not go into Jain doctrine much at all. He um, talks to these communities about non-sectarian Jainism with an emphasis that couldn't be further away from, from Tantra, from this allegation of Jains meddling in Tantra that he heard from the Samvegi Sadhus. He emphasizes knowledge and social action. Um, the word humanism is probably the most prevalent word in the entire travelogue and interfaith collaborations. He makes a point of always mentioning the fact that he also is invited very cordially to Muslim homes, to hi Hindu families, that he also interacts with the local Swahili population. Um, so that is very strongly present and that is very clearly kind of also a reaction to this, um, this triad he has going on with the uh, Sanvegi Sadhus and the Yatis. Then you also have clear um, references to independence movements, both in India, of course, very strongly, and Gandhi. 
um, but also independence movements going on in other places in the world. So the broader anti-colonialism is quite present there, as is sort of this, this appeal for solidarity between these colonies and to help each other figure out ways to get back to independence and to get back the values of these ancient civilizations, especially around the Western Indian Ocean. Um, he actually talks, he shares a cabin on uh, the second steamer with a person called Jomo Kenyatta, who will be the first president of independent Kenya, which is a, a lovely coincidence and very interesting because there they discuss the, um, the merits of Marxism and Gandhian nationalism. Um, and it's very clear throughout the travelogue that there are nods to socialism and Marxism, not necessarily that um, Yatihem Chandra himself preaches over Marxism or socialism, but he does let Jomo Kenyatta tell his story and um, kind of um, talk up the merits of um, communism without really going against him. Um so these are another few um, excerpts. Let me see how how badly I'm going over time. Uh, but he talks about the lust for empire that grows and the sting of selfishness fell on the world. Human civilizations were destroyed for status and profit. The selfishness of man undermined culture and the entire world got caught up in this current. So it's, again, this gives you an idea of it's very eloquently written, quite strong and not just on the level of let's get the British out, but on the level of how to think of culture, civilization, and the passing of time. Um, Anti-sectarianism is very present. Um, he, of course, writes, but when he travels, he is invited to Gandhi Jayanti celebrations, but Gandhi is still alive at that time. But by the time he writes about these Gandhi Jayanti celebrations he attends in Nairobi, I think, Gandhi has been assassinated. And there he writes, we should not be swept away in the stream of sectarianism and lose our sense of humanity. There we are again with the humanism and humanity. Um, just because we believe our principles are true and beautiful does not mean we should impose them. And at the same time, we should learn to cultivate moral courage so that if something seems to be true, we can accept it. Even though it may be a truth that shatters our preconceived notions, truth is hard to contemplate, digest and embrace, but only this is the right way to live. Um, I'm going to skip this to get to the conclusion and also because I want to read you one last a last excerpt before we conclude. So in conclusion, I'm just very happy to share these glimpses of ongoing research with you guys. Um, so I don't have a broad conclusion yet. I'm in the middle of this and I'm very excited to read and learn more. Um, but what I can say is that we see in this travelogue a unique intersection of events where in kind of the final decline of the Yati order, but still we see this narrative, which is pre presented very strongly. We get an idea of this de developing Jain diaspora in the 40s, which is really when the diaspora as we know it now got going. Um, we see these independence movements on both sides of the, um, the Western Indian Ocean, and we see different anti-colonial ideologies, some more communist inclined, some more um, sort of cultural nationalist inclined. We see them interwoven in this tale. 
It's also interesting to link this to ongoing concerns um, about mendicants, mendicants traveling, about sort of the, the essence of the role of the mendicant in Jainism. Is there a need for outreach to lay populations? Should Jain mendicants be present in the world like this, or should they focus on their own spiritual, individual spiritual progress, which from certain perspectives, is the essence of being a mendicant. That is why you do it. You retreat from the world, then why go out in it? Um, and it is also really one of the only sources to study Jainism in East Africa before the 1950s. So as sort of a closing statement, I want to read you one last bit of um, this travelogue where, and it's one of the instances where we see that Jain doctrine um, and, uh, the, and and moksha does every so often enter into the story. Above was the sky and below was the sea. In between the two, our steamer crossed. Near the shore, the water had been yellow and dirty, but here the currents were crystal black. I gazed at them before heading to my cabin for a long rest. The steamer rocked and made us sway, and the swaying also brought us peace. I lay in bed and the waves of my thoughts rose in my mind like the waves of the sea. Isn't the world just like the ocean? It is infinite, it has storms and tempests, and our lives are being propelled by its turns. As the steamer is dry, so our soul is dry. And it too must cross the ocean and visit the different ports along its shores to finally reach the peaceful place of its final destination and enter the kingdom of Moksh. But what if the steamer goes down in a sudden storm along the way? What if the stall gets stranded in this life? Can the steamer take the same way back? And how long will the journey take? Can anyone really make it to the other shore? I closed my eyes. I fell asleep with the sea rocking me like a small child. And that is where I will leave it. Thank you very much for bearing with me through my excitement about this ongoing um, project. Thank you so much. That was really insightful, really innovative. We never heard so many details of African Jain, Jains or Jains. <laughs> Not only Kenya had some Jains. I think Kanji Swami had gone to Kenya and there was a temple. Yeah, he did in, in 1980. It's the only, um, yeah. the only overseas visit he did. So, so much we learned today. Thank you so much. We have a hand raised by Mr. Siddharth Shahi. So let's uh, see what he has to ask or mention. Oh, yeah, Siddharth. Go ahead, please. His hand is still up. Okay. Meanwhile, anybody else would like to ask or comment? You are welcome to ask here. Uh, yes. Uh, meanwhile, you can tell us more. Uh, how many countries in Africa today have Jain temples? Um, today, there's quite a few Jain temples. So Mombasa, um, they, they built one in uh, in the 60s. Well, let me start. So they got they got a first um, building built um, early on in the 20s where they could gather and they had a small temple, but it wasn't a Shikarbandi temple. It wasn't an Indian style temple. Um, now, in the 60s, they built the first one, Shvetambar um, Deravasi. And then um, in the 80s, they build a new one. And the one that is now usually sort of referred to as the Mombasa Temple is the one that was built in the 80s. Um, there is one in Nairobi as well, also from the early 80s, if I'm not much mistaken. 
Um, the temple in Zanzibar is still there, and I hope to visit it um, early next year. It is not a day-to-day -day functioning temple, but the Dar es Salaam Jain Sang actually goes there, uh, I think, on two occasions for festivals to do uh, some pujas and to have some events there. So it is, you can visit it, but it's not, so that there's no daily puja going on. Um, that is also that's also Shvetamber Temple. So the Gamber Temple there is, um, not in Zanzibar. Um, there's definitely one in Mombasa, and there's also one in um, in Nairobi. I would have to look into the dates for that, but it's quite late. Because uh, no, the Digamber um, group there was quite small until Kanji Swami came. Well, not till he came there, but until Kanji Swami. Um, and his reform movement become more became more popular in Gujarat, and from then you see that um, there's more and more sort of um, Digambar giants identifying with this Digambar ideology in East Africa. So a lot of them actually internally converted from um, sort of being Shvetambar um, Oshwals to Digambar Oshwals to these Mumukshus um, following um, Kanji Swami, um, and then in in. Um, in Kampala, in Uganda, you had a temple um, which was no more after 72. So all of that was nationalized. Um, I'm assuming that there's probably a place um, of worship there now. But again, Jains only came back to Kampala in the 90s. Um, so I'm not entirely sure of that. Um, Dar es Salaam has temples um as well, probably Ishvetambar and uh, uh, Digambar. And then there's community halls, the Mahanjanwadis are dotted around the place. So even quite small villages in, in Kenya, as soon as there were sort of five, six families, they would try to set up a hall because on the whole, these communities did really well. Um, so they did become from quite humble beginnings. Um, they did become quite wealthy and then this is one of the things that they would um, invest in and that they would uh, they would try to construct so uh, like the one in Mbale in, uh, in Uganda that we saw in the picture um, that that's a small community I think there were only 150 Jains there but still they sort of um, got it to building this and, and sort of um, gathering money for this uh, to have a place uh, where they could meet Okay. Anybody else? Any other question? Hello, can you hear uh, me? Yeah, yeah. Siddharth has typed his question. Okay. Uh, wait, let me see. Ah. Okay, I'm wondering if this is more a question for Eva. Um, differentiation yeah. within the Ramayana and Hinduism and Jainism, but Jainism being a punt and not a religion in itself. Um, okay, I, I, I can sort of, <laughs> I can talk about this, but I think it's more a question for Eva. So if Eva, Eva is still here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I was talking about Jain temples. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, yeah, I can yeah, hear you. Okay, so uh, so I've been to Europe and uh, some parts of the Oriental nations, basically, and I've stayed in Gujarat. Or, and uh, I've been to a lot of the officers. So what do you think about this culture and uh, the architecture difference which you see, the, like the impact of Oriental countries on the Jain architecture? 
as well as this culture out there in the Malaysian and Singaporean side, as well as the European impact uh, on the derasars you see in Europe and yeah. Okay, that's a really interesting question. I must say, I haven't been to um, Malaysia or Singapore myself. Um, we have a, a PhD student who will leave in five days from Belgium to go and explore uh, Jainism in Southeast Asia. So I'll get back to you. When, when next we meet, I will have an opinion about this. Um, but about Europe and, and, um, and the US, I can sort of um, talk to, about this a little bit. So you have different things um when jane's first sort of started coming to for example the uk um in a larger group um people didn't really think about building like a traditional jane temple so then they would just try to get a building in leicester for example in the uk it's a church it's a former church to house a um a temple in so there you see it's very clearly western architecture um but on the inside the, the most sort of sculpture etc is is imported from india so you have nods to traditional architecture without it actually the building being at all um jain or indic or anything really um, but then as these communities grow, and especially if they're quite wealthy, you do find sort of this this um, urge to get more traditional buildings going on. And you also see yeah. that in the newer temples, so from the 60s and yes. the 80s in, uh, in East Africa, that they're built usually sort of to the example of the temples that are found in Gujarat and the, um, the south of, um, Rajasthan. of Rajasthan. Yeah. yeah. Um, the one in Antwerp, for example, is actually it's it's 12th to 13th century um, Gujarati temple, white marble. It you know it <laughs> it just is. It has very few nods to European influence. Uh, it's very clearly sort of um, taught through. They, they want to be as close to traditional temple architecture as they can, and you see that in some places in the US as well. It just really depends on how wealthy a community is, um, and also how um well um how sort of the internal demographics are so it's very clear in um in antwerp this is a predominantly gujarati community it's a diamond community they have a lot of money they went for as traditional as we can get gujarati yeah. style Monday. Right. But if you have a community which has more Jains from um, Karnataka, for example, um, and a mix of Rajasthani and Gujarati, then it's it becomes more of a challenge to figure out what exactly you want to build. So the Oshwal Center Temple in um, in London, for example, is also quite a traditional temple. Also, they, although they have decided to add a lift, uh, add an elevator. Um, but it's it's sort of in the red sandstone um, building material that you see. It's not the white marble. Mm. Um, in Antwerp, they really very clearly went for the white marble. And in the US, where these communities are usually more diverse, um, you see that the building is pretty much standard Western, but there is a love to make it shikarbandi. So you often have like a Western building style box mm -hmm. house really with then the shikar on top 
Uh, I don't know if that answers your questions. These were some yeah, of my thoughts. <laughs> Okay, any other question from anybody else? If not, I, uh, yeah, Sanjay. Go ahead, Sanjay. Yeah, uh, so uh, I hope I have not missed this part, um, but I was wondering, uh, in Hindus, we have this notion of, or rather we had this notion of purity and pollution uh, when one crosses the ocean or the seas. Uh, so I was wondering uh, whether this kind of notion was there um, amongst the Jain mendicants also. Oh, it's it's definitely there. So if you look at sort of Jain doctrine, it's very difficult to pinpoint it. It's not necessarily in those texts, but it is kind of this um, trepidation, um, this idea of not to to cross the black water. Right? It's definitely it's culturally there. Right. Without wanting to go into the discussion whether Jainism is a separate tradition or or sort of um, um, yeah part part of Hinduism, which um, was referred to in uh, Siddharth's other question, it's definitely there. It's culturally there. It, this is the black water, right? Um, both for mendicants and for lay people. And now mendicants traditionally wouldn't travel by a mechanical means, so they wouldn't get on a boat anyway. So it's these yatis. And then later on from the 70s, some individual mendicants starting to make an exception. But usually they wouldn't travel at all. So then it's less of an issue because you know they would their their vows wouldn't allow them anyway. But even for lay people, it's a big step. Um, it's a big step, and then for Jains, it's not necessarily framed um, in sort of purity impurity, but it's just very practically. How are you going to um, do your daily rituals? How are you going to keep to a strict Jain vegetarian diet if you're going to go do this? But for the people who left from um, Kutch, and definitely the ones from Gujarat, they left at a time when um, their, the monsoon had not been good. They weren't really doing great. The situation there, something had to give. At the very least, there was not a lot of opportunity for the younger generations to really do anything. Um, so making that, do, sort of making that step was necessary and if you look at individual um like like autobiographies and, and accounts of people that actually left it's very much framed as an adventure um the thoughts of you know what are you going to do and purity and and and, and what are you going to eat they're there they're there in the accounts of the mothers they leave behind and of sort of the, the village leaders that say oh, be careful but in the minds of these people that are going to be these pioneering immigrants there it's it's very much an adventure and it's also very much a necessity they weren't that well off when they left and in many cases, in one or two generations, they turned it around completely. They became really wealthy and they could, um, they were one of the communities that very early on went all out for education. They educate both their sons and their daughters, send everyone to universities in London and back to, to Mumbai and, and all that. So it was a gamble. There was a lot of trepidation there, but it needed to be done. And it was also very much an adventure. Uh, so I think this also brings us back to the question of lemons, uh, because they didn't have anything to eat. And so the lemons. Lemons. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. 
All right. Anything else? Anybody else? I think that's it. Sanjay, you can take care of the closing now. Okay, sure. Um, so firstly, thank you uh, all for joining us on this incredible journey. Thank you, Professors Eva, Professor Tini. Um, this was uh, a very um, enlightening way of knowing about the Jain history and uh, especially for someone like me, uh, who who is not a scholar of Jain history, but still I, I got to know so many things through this webinar and thank you professor pankaj jain for organizing this webinar and uh, so thank you everyone see you bye thank, thank you, you sanjay thank, thank you, you pankaj ji bye, bye.